Dialoguing on South Asia, we explore the lives of its people, hear their stories and the histories of the land, discover its beauty, and encounter its conflicts, complexities, and harmonies in a search for liberty, peace, and prosperity. Interacting with leaders, activists, academics, and common folk from the South Asian sphere about their work and their passions, their dreams and their life journeys, their immigrant experiences, advocacy efforts, religion, politics, and so much more with this, your host, journalist and author Peter Friedrich. Hand in hand, we meet and stand with South Asia. This is DOSA. Welcome once again to the show. This is Dosa, and we're here today with Pastor Brian uh, Naren, or is it Naren? Naren? Yeah, slow Southern Naren. Naren, Naren. Pastor you Brian go. Naren. How you doing, sir? Doing well. Great to see you. Well, pleasure to have you on the show, and I have to be honest with you. I believe this is the first time. This is a new show. But I do believe that this is the first time that we've actually had an accused criminal um, as our guest. So I'm looking forward to an entertaining conversation and uh, learning the uh, ins and outs of what it's like to be behind bars. That is me, for sure. All right. <laughs> well, one of the last places uh, that we met uh, last month, uh, we were together for a couple of days. We had a chance to uh, sit down for a couple of meals. I believe one of our closest to last meals was at the International House of Pancakes, IHOP. But my understanding yeah. is you're a pastor and you actually uh, you're affiliated with IHOP, but a very different kind of an IHOP. And you're you're based out of Tennessee. So, Pastor Brian, can you uh, just give a brief introduction, uh, who you are, what you do? Yeah, of course, my name is Brian Naren. Um, I'm married to a wife, Rhonda. Rhonda and I have been married for the last 44 years. I've got two children. Uh, uh, my son has three grandchildren, so I'm just a regular average type of guy. Uh, I have been pastoring the International House of Prayer Ministries, which is a church here in Tennessee. Uh, just celebrated our 25th anniversary a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and then for the last 21 years, by the way, I'm sorry. Congratulations on that, by the way. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Not a lot of and, people uh, make it that long. That's what everybody keeps telling me. It, it came to my attention from a friend about a year ago and they were having that conversation. You've been there 25 years and I'm, yeah. It's the first time I've ever pastored. It's the first church I've ever pastored. So I kind of thought that was normal. Uh, but we've got a really great church, thriving church, growing church. Uh, really enjoy being a pastor. And then uh, for the last 21 years, I've been doing work in uh, Nepal and Northeast India among children. Uh, it's a Christian organization. We're a 501c3 called the Asian Children's Education Fellowship. And uh, we are singular in focus. We do a few other things, but we're pretty much singular in focus. We teach Sunday school teachers, 18 to 27 year old, to teach and love children. Uh, we don't care what kind of children they are. We are a Christian-based organization, but we work with the children that are there. We don't care what religion they are, what their background is. The only thing they all have in common with is their in some kind of significant level of poverty. Well, I look forward to unpacking a little bit more of, of that with you and what got you into that. Um, but with your with your ministry there, uh, for the listeners, um, what 
got you into ministry and what kind of a church uh, are you a pastor of? How, you said uh, this is the first church you've pastored. How, how long have you been a pastor? And and of course, as I as I said, what was it that drew you into into this course, into this line of uh, life? Well, as a, as a kid growing up, I grew up uh, a heathen. Uh, I didn't know anything about God. Uh, my grandparents raised me. They didn't like preachers. They didn't like church. Uh, but then through a, another uh, little legal problem I ran into as a 15-year-old, uh, or excuse me, as a 13-year-old, uh, I broke the windshield out of a woman's car with a baseball bat because she yelled at me for crossing her yard. And uh, the end result was after the police were called, she said it. These kids, I'm the oldest of four, will go with me to vacation Bible school. I won't have Brian arrested. And so my mom thought that was a good idea. And, and I began, I went to church for my very first time that I was paying attention to. Uh, and then in the next couple of years, the Lord really got my attention. Uh, I became a Christian at 14. And by 15, at the age of 15, I knew that I wanted to do that for a living. I wanted to do that for a life, is to be involved with people and helping people. And uh, at, at the same time, I, I didn't know hardly anything about God at all myself. I was having to learn. And um, I remember in high school, I would carry a, a full Bible. It was a small enough Bible, but it, it, it was a full Bible, New Testament, Old Testament, in my back pocket from the time I became a Christian until I graduated. And so at study hall and wherever I got a chance, I was trying to figure out who God was. And he was kind enough to put some good people in my life and let me learn. The, uh, the group that I'm... Uh, was became a Christian, was a Pentecostal group. Uh, I pastor an independent Pentecostal church. We don't belong to any other groups or denominations, but that's uh, how I got there. I, I was spent most of my life in the steel industry. I'm a manufacturing specialist of automotive parts and stuff and restaurant equipment, two different uh, veins of working in the steel industry. Uh, was on a search committee for a church uh, that I was attending in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, looking for a, a administrator and a, for a Christian school and a pastor. After several months, they said, why don't you just take the job, Brian? And I thought, I will. I always wanted to. That was my introduction, and I got into the ministry there. Uh, three years later, I moved back to Tennessee. I originally was born in Tennessee, and we moved back here. And I started pastoring a church of 15 people to see how it would work. And here I am still here. Well, and uh, moved back to Tennessee, got pulled back. Uh, you, you've been a pastor for what, about uh, 10 years, 20 years? 25 years, two 25 weeks ago, years. 25 years. Coinciding with your 25th marriage anniversary. No, marriage is 44 years. Marriage is 44 years. Okay, well, that's- yeah, Your whole life I've been married to All right, then. Congratulations yeah. on that. Uh, I look forward to uh, um, doing what I can to view that as a model for my own life. Well, so somewhere along the way, um, you you did take some kind of an interest in, in South Asia. You mentioned Nepal and, and northern in northern India. And what was it um, that came into your life that that, that, that drew you into that? Like what, what came across your path? How did you get introduced to the issue of South Asia? Did you just randomly pick up and go to see the Taj Mahal one day and decide that you'd fallen in love with the area or what happened? I, when I was 15, I read an article in a magazine. I don't want to be a Christian a little bit. And uh, I read an article in there on uh, Pakistan, India, and Nepal. And I just, it, it became a, 
you know, one of these days it'll be a cool idea and I'll get to go and see. And of course, after, you know, I continued to grow in the Lord and become very active and was actually doing some missionary work in South America. When I met a guy named Glenn Shepherd, Glenn said, I want you to go to Nepal with me. And I'm like, well, I'd love to go, but I'm busy and I can't go. But anyhow, the Lord really pushed me to go with Glenn. And so in 2001, we were on our way to Nepal and a little something happened in the U.S. called 9-11. And so the year that I was, first year I was going, of course, the trips got canceled. 2002, I did make my first trip. I fell in love with the people, the country, and it was just a, you know, it's what, what I was born to do. And it all came together and God showed me, you know, this is what all of that other stuff meant was so you could come here and, and help people. And so I began that in 2002. In, in 2002, when you first went over, did you go just to Nepal or, or to northern India, both uh, northern India? First, what what states in northern yeah. India have you tended to go to as well? Uh, my first trip, I went to Thailand and then to, and to Nepal, fell in love with Nepal. Uh, I did not go to India my first time until 2005, about three or four years later. And up until the time that I, I was arrested, I'd never been anywhere in India except for West Bengal and Sikkim, Northeast. West and Bengal. the reason the, the reason for that is most of the people in that region speak the Nepali language. Before colonization, Darjeeling and Sikkim was part of Nepal and a little bit of Bhutan. But then after the British did all the rearranging and dancing, uh, those Nepali sparks ended up being part of West Bengal, which is India today. So. And as a point of interest, do you yourself speak some Nepali? I, if I'm in the country and I stay there a week, I get where I can understand it pretty good. Uh, after two or three weeks, I can begin to communicate a little bit. But the King of Nepal in 1990 opened the country up for the first time for tourism. And when he opened the country up for tourism, he mandated that all education from like the fifth grade, fourth grade for them on would be in English. And so most of the, anywhere you go in the poll, people will speak really good English. Uh, and they certainly understand English. So it's not necessary for me. Nepal is a lot like India. You know, India's got hundreds of different dialects and languages. Well, so does Nepal. Nepal's the same way. It used, there used to every different mountain you switched was a different kingdom and a different king in, you know, year 50, 100 years ago. So. so at some point from when you began this work in 2002 and, and you said that uh, in 2005, then that's when you first uh, got a chance to go to India. At some point, this became relatively routine for you to, to do, right? I mean, you were going, what, once a year or twice a year or something like that? It became really routine right away. I went in 2002 for the one trip. Uh, 2003, I made two trips, and I've been going almost every year, twice a year, April and October, for 21 years. For how long do you go? Uh, it's always a, at least two weeks, uh, sometimes three weeks. I've stayed a month time, but my wife doesn't think that's a good idea to stay gone from home too long, so. But it's normally a two-week trip in April and a two-week trip in October. And you said that the focus of your work has mostly been, uh, almost exclusively been, on this training of 18 to 27-year-olds to be Sunday school teachers. 
Um, what, yeah. what is that? What is that training? Uh, and what has that training looked like? What, what do you What do you do there on the ground? Well, that very first trip I went, I met the guy that I'm still working with, and he manages and runs our everything we do there is indigenous. Uh, they teach their own people and train their, their own people. Uh, each year, right now, each year we will train about twelve thousand uh, students to to work with children. And uh, we've been doing that for, for many years now. So we've trained over 230,000 Nepali-speaking men and women to teach children and work with children. And the scope of what we do, uh, this will be the easiest. It's a long story, but this is the easiest way to explain it. If you sign up to be in our program, 18 to 24-year-old, you're finished your regular schooling, and you're, you've decided most of them have decided not to go into secondary education. Um, into college or anything. So if they want to be trained in our program, their first day of sign-up, their first class is 10 days. They have to go to a school for 10 days for an introductory course that lasts two years to be fully trained as a children's worker. And many of our children workers have gone on and they're, they're, they're actually school teachers now because they, you know, they work with children in every direction, shape, and form. You said that this this is something that's focused on um, providing for children of all of all religious backgrounds. It's it's not just for Christian children, right? It, we work with every child. In fact, most of a, a lot of the different pro one of the programs that we've done that's uh, kind of tangible and easy for people to understand is we do a joint thing with Rotary International, where they, we, we do a project and then they pay half of us back. So it's called a, a joint deal. But we will uh, we'll buy about 1,000 to 1,700 uniforms, books, and shoes every year. Because Nepal and India both are, are secular nations now. It, uh, Nepal wasn't when I started, but in 2006 it had been. Their constitution says that all children, regardless of race, creed, color, you know, the whole deal of, of equality is entitled to a public education, the same as the United States, except they all have one caveat. Uh, that child must be able to provide its own uniform, books, and shoes. That eliminates uh, about 60 or 70 percent of the Nepali children. It eliminates 25 or 30 percent of the Indian children. And so uh, when after Edmund Hillary had uh, went up Mount Everest and summited Mount Everest, he wanted to give back to the country of Nepal and Northeast India, where the Himalayas are. And he built 1,000 school buildings. He raised the money and built 1,000 school buildings. The problem was is they didn't have 1,000 teachers. Uh, even today, there's many of those school buildings that are scattered out through the Himalayas that are used for purposes other than education. And one of the, the big components was when the caste system was active in Nepal, and it's still active in India and Nepal, both of you say it's not. But the old caste system, if you were in the lower couple of castes, you were not legally permitted to read or write. And so Hillary didn't understand that or thought it would change or anyhow. He built a lot of schools in a lot of places where it wasn't even permissible for kids to learn to read. Well, now they can legally since 2006, but they still can't because they're too poor. Uh, a uniform for a kid is only $20. We, cust we have them tailor-made because you can't go to Walmart in the, 
Himalayas and buy school uniforms and school clothes. But it's, it's 20 bucks for a pair of shoes and a, a, a school uniform that lasts about three years and the stationery, the books they need to go to school. And so we pick villages, uh, my, tra- my staff there targets different places and we'll go into a village where there's a building and the government has a provided teacher, but she may only have two or three or four students and we'll boost her school by a hundred kids. That's incredible. And uh, it's been a, it's been a super, super successful project. After 21 years, some of those kids that were never going to learn how to read and write today are in nursing school, learning to be nurses and lawyers and lots of super, super intelligent children have been held back because of their caste, because of their birth condition under Hinduism. So that's, uh, once again, uh, Pastor, that's that's incredible. And sounds like a lot of the work that you've done has really taken advantage of the opening up of, of, of freedom of education or the protection of, of freedom yeah. of education there in Nepal. And related to that, uh, before we move on to some of your, your more recent and personal experiences, um, I know that, uh, I mean, you've been going uh, to this region since 2002, and there was a governmental change, uh, a change in administration in, in India in uh, 2014. Um, and since then, one of the things that has changed a lot in India, although uh, the, the the changes that have occurred during this time period in India um, aren't, aren't so much um, impacting Nepal as far as the time period, but Nepal has dealt with similar issues, uh, is um, changes in, in freedom of religion in, in, in the laws, um, especially at this point now, there's probably about 50% of Indian states, which have um, on the books laws known as these anti-conversion laws, which basically require you to get government permission to change your religion. And I know that Nepal has dealt with some kind of similar uh, types of legislation as well in the past. Um, From your perspective as a pastor, especially considering that as you're talking about the work that you've done there, uh, it's focused on education, it's focused on providing education to children, uh, no matter what their religious background is. Um, I, I'd love to get your your opinion on, on uh, these laws, a few things about them. Uh, what do you think of these laws as a pastor? And uh, then, of course, one of the rationales offered for a lot of these laws is to prevent so-called fraudulent conversions being conducted uh, because of things like what's what's termed allurement, such as people being paid off to, to change their religion or something like that. Um, and your perspective as a pastor, as, as an American, what do you what do you think of these laws in general? And then also, especially as a pastor um, and as somebody that's been there on the ground in South Asia, what, what do you think of this idea of somebody changing their religion because of allurement, uh, do you support that in any way whatsoever? And especially, is that something that you've seen actually happening um, in any way whatsoever in South Asia during uh, your 21 years there? You know, there is is no other way for any religion to change anybody from any other religion without allurement. 
the Hindus convert people to Hinduism by things and objects and experiences. Muslims do the same. Everybody. There's no such thing as a conversion to another religion without being a Lord, because why would anybody want to go if it was distasteful? So that's it's kind of a it's it's an, a very ignorant law. It's a very dishonest law. It does exist in India and Nepal, pretty much the same. But it's not even uh, logical. It is simply a state-run religion that has ever intentions of forcing their citizenship to worship at the state church. You know, both, both countries are Hindu in nature. Both countries openly say now, especially since 2014, that we are a Hindu nation. If you want to be here, you'll be a Hindu. If you don't want to be a Hindu, that's pretty good allurement to me when they tell me they're going to kill me or put me in prison if I don't join their religion, uh, right? So they violate their own ethics and their own, there's no ethics, but they, they violate their own rules because they consistently are forcing conversion on non-Hindu people to join the Hinduism. So as a pastor, uh, it doesn't bother me. They're, they're, it's, a, it's, a, it's a religious government. It's not a government for the people, by the people, as we you know, think about the United States of America. It is uh, the way they're going to do things, and they don't really care. But I do know this, and I know we'll get into the story a little bit longer, more in, in a minute, but I, because I had some extended uh, judicial time in India, I was able to spend several months with an uh, advocate, lawyer from the Supreme Court in Delhi who represented me while I was there. And he was, he was so aggravated and so upset about how they have trashed and destroyed so much of the Indian constitution. What the, the whole thing about allurement and, and, and converting people is a complete total violation of their own constitution. 75 years ago, it was established and it, it's just a Violation. The Constitution says in clear words, you have the freedom to practice any religion you want to or none. You have the freedom to convert anybody to your religion if you're good enough at it and convince them. I guess that's allurement, right? So it, it's, it's, it, it's a disguise for, you know, for um, dictatorship. It, it, it's a disguise for government. Uh, authoritarianism. It, it, nationalism is about there's 10 or 15 of us that are super smart, we're super intelligent, and the rest of you dumb people need to do what we tell you. That's the what's really happening. It's, it's not, it hasn't got anything to do with religion at all. Uh, you know, I know good Hindu people who think it's atrocious that anybody would force, you know, that they're Hindu by choice or Hindu because they want to be. And they think it ought to be that way for everybody else. And if they don't like Hinduism, they're perfectly fine with me being a Christian. I've never had any negative conversations with tons, thousands of Hindu people. I don't attack them. They don't attack me. I respect them. They respect me. Not the present activity of India. Well, that was a little bit of an out of left field answer from what I might have expected and made a lot of sense from a logical perspective. Um, that that idea that every religion by nature uses allurement in, in one sense or another to attract 
attract followers and that trying to prohibit conversion by allurement is really contrary to the idea of, of even having a religion. Um, but uh, as you said, um, this is really about dictatorship, about this authoritarianism and, and having this system where 10 or 15 people think that they're really smart and everybody else is really stupid. And those 10 or 15 people think that they can set the uh, stage for how everyone else has to play out their rules. Now, um, leading into your personal experience, um, which was in began in 2019, um, in 2014, uh, this new government came into power in India. Uh, the the BJP uh, party took power with with Narendra Modi as the prime minister. And since you'd been going to South Asia for such a long period of time um, before that, uh, for for what uh, 12 years before that, and then for many years after that. Uh, before you were uh, eventually imprisoned. What, what was it that you saw, if anything, um, as far as um, evidence of some kind of uh, shift in environment, uh, a, a feeling within society in India uh, where you were actually imprisoned, um, uh, or, or um, uh, attitude, behavior, feeling of, of lack of security, or... Uh, among the Christian community, that sort of thing? Uh, for me personally, in 2019, when I was traveling in October and was arrested, I was completely blindsided. Uh, I do a lot of research and pay attention to the government of Nepal, where I travel all the time, and and there's probably not a, a there's not a, as far as I know, there's not a road that's surfaced in Nepal that I haven't been on in every village along the way. I've traveled extensively there. So I pay attention to their government because their government's always changing. You know, every couple of years, they throw the government away and start all over and throw the government away. So I, I kept up with that. I was not keeping up with the change of governments in India because India for the last hundred years has been an easy enough place for anybody to go and enjoy and see and, and do what they wanted to. So when I was arrested, in the Siliger Airport, I was or Bagdogra Airport, I was completely blindsided. I, I I came through Delhi and I did what I normally always do. Uh, if anybody has ever flown through Delhi, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. It's the most confusing airport in the world. Nobody ever knows where to go, what to do. The only real command that they all memorize from the first training class they got is just you wait. Where do I go? Just you wait. What should I do? Just you wait. What? Just you wait. And uh, in 2019, it was no different than the other years that I'd traveled through Delhi. Uh, we got there in the middle. I got there at one o'clock in the morning. The computers were down. Uh, it was the middle of festival. The, the computer people that took off and gone to a festival and they couldn't get things to work. And it was just you wait, just you wait, do this, do that. And I went through the normal process of declaration and getting our, uh, it was the first year that I'd ever used the electronic visa where we were didn't have to send a passport in ahead of time. You just did an application and we went through that process and stamped. We did declaration, but the thing that changed was when we got to the last security checkpoint before going to the domestic to fly to another place in India. They asked me questions that I've never been asked before. So had, had you already gotten through immigration and, and you were now uh, past yeah. that and passport stamps through, and everything? Yeah, I'd been through immigration, passport stamps, visa stamps, had our luggage, did the, you know, the down into the dark 
dungeon hallway and back up and back into the regular part of the airport, uh, the domestic airport. Uh, but they, they ask the questions at security checkpoints and never been asked before. Are you a Christian? I've never been asked if I was a Christian before in India. I've been asked a lot of times in Nepal, but I've never been asked, are you a Christian? And then they ask, would you, will you be meeting with Christians while you're in India? Yes, we're both answered. And I was carrying some money with me. There was three of us American pastors who were traveling together. I was carrying money to fund the things that we've talked about already. And they well, said, so well, you, you, were, need you were carrying money to fund things like, like paying for teacher training. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. In October, we always do a couple of conferences. We invite, we do it two different locations. We invite a thousand of our best students to each location across wherever India or Nepal. And, uh, but, you know, is anybody in uh, India going to receive any of this money? And I said, well, we were just traveling through India on this particular trip going to Nepal. I said, I don't have a plan, but if I get a chance to help somebody, I will. Always have. Nobody ever cared. It never made any difference. Uh, but after the fourth security person in a row asked me the identical three questions, I told one of the guys that was traveling with me, I said, something's really changed here. Something's completely, because security in India, especially the Delhi airport, never existed. You know, it's just come on through, wander through, God, I don't know where to tell you to go. Where do I go here? I don't know. Ask yeah, somebody else. I don't know. And that part hadn't changed that year, but there, there was a very keen focus on Christianity. Uh, before the day would be finished, I would get 10 different interviews, 10 different officers, 10 different levels from security to the tax officers uh, to uh, customs officers. And every one of those 10 men started off with the exact same identical questions. Obviously, they had been trained and they were doing what they were ordered or told to do by their superiors. And that was uh, find out who's Christian. So, but, but, find out who's bringing money to the Christians in the in India. So all of this, uh, it sounds like all of this happened at the Delhi airport, 10 different uh, interviews, 10 different people uh, over one day. Four, four different people in the Delhi airport. They cleared me, said, you're fine to fly. We understand. Don't worry about it. I flew on to Bagdogra airport. Uh, when I landed in Bagdogra, I was arrested as soon as I got off the plane, taken into custody and, custom office under custody and everything I owned was confiscated. They had sent a letter ahead. They gave me a copy of the letter uh, saying this man is coming to you. He has this much money, even though nobody counted the money in Delhi, they just took my word for how much was in there. He's bringing this much money, do with him what you will. Now, that's probably one of the most perplexing uh, and dystopian aspects uh, for me is that, okay, they were planning to arrest you, but what, after interrogating you multiple times in Delhi, they, they they cleared you to go ahead and fly off to your to your destination anyways, and then they arrested you when, when you landed there. So once you landed there, and, and this was West Bengal, correct, that you landed in? Yes. And once once you landed there, um, they... they they again took you aside. You said they confiscated everything. At what point did the, was it clear that uh, you were actually under arrest? And once you were under arrest, what was the what was the process over the next uh, that night? Um, 
were you the, the interview, in custody? Yeah. The interview was done by six different officers. Those six officers in back Belgrade Airport asked the same questions that they did in the Daly Airport, uh, except they went further. They did good cop, bad cop, and all the different levels of interrogation. But they questioned me for eight straight hours. And it was at the end of eight hours that they said, we're going to arrest the three of you, because there was two other guys traveling. They separated us in different rooms, you know, and doing the police investigation thing. And uh, after a little bit of conversation, because they, they were still not telling me truth of what was the real plan. The chief of customs uh, told me, he said, well, because of these things, you're going to have to go before a judge tomorrow. So we're going to take you to jail tonight and hold you. And then tomorrow you'll see a judge and you'll pay the $200 that they should have collected from you in Delhi, but didn't. And you'll be free to go. Well, none of that was true. Uh, but in that conversation, they let my two friends go. And I encouraged them to do it. I said, there's no need to put us all in jail. Let them go. What I didn't realize is they were tricking me. Uh, it wasn't a good enough trick, but they were tricking me to take possession of all of the money that actually was split up between three people. And uh, later I would learn the intention was, was to raise the uh, amount of money that I had to a level that would have kicked me into a different uh, criminal aspect. Unfortunately, I, I didn't have, I just barely had a, half enough for that level that they were seeking. Uh, so it fell apart. So, but it didn't fall. It didn't fall apart until after I'd spent six days in an Indian prison, and was out on bail for three months before that adjudication process ran its course. Now you were um, you were held. Um, you were detained for an entirety of, of nine months, if I'm not mistaken. The initial seven, seven, seven and a half months. months. Uh, seven and a half months. Well, well, in that case, I don't know if we should be having this conversation. You get back to me when you've when you've done nine. When I've really suffered. Yeah. Um, so in the in the initial uh, six days, you were actually in a Indian prison, and, and then uh, after that, uh, can you describe um, uh, the process of uh, going from the Indian prison and then on to on to other locations, and and how were you treated uh, during this time? Um, were you were you um, uh, I mean, properly fed, uh, properly housed. Uh, were you were you physically abused, verbally abused in any way whatsoever? Uh, the, the six days in prison was terrible. I mean, it was an Indian prison. There was no edible food. There was no sanitation. It was just a, a, a barred place with a steel bed, and uh, it, it was all bad. I mean, I could tell that story, but everybody's seen the movie already. Uh, it's exactly as bad as the bad movies you see. After uh, the American Center for Law and Justice became involved in my case the very first day, and they're the ones that got me out on bail after six days. They were going to keep me for 30 days before I could even have a bail hearing. Uh, they were able to get me out in six. The, the bail agreement was that I would be available to be interviewed with any officer of the Customs Department upon call. I had to go to the airport or go wherever they told me to. Uh, the second condition was is that I would appear in court every Wednesday and check in to let them know I was still there. They'd confiscated everything, including my passport, never gave it back And through all this process. And then the third thing was that I had to stay at a guest house, not far from the court, 
uh, and I was only allowed to be there. I couldn't travel away from there except court and back or to maybe a, a small shop or something that was located, you know, just up and down the street there. Uh, failure, uh, and all of that was at my ex personal expense. I had to rent my own motel, my, I had to do my own food, I had to do all of those things personally myself, and they had taken all of my money and all of my identification. Uh, in India, you're not allowed to stay in a guest house or a motel without ch checking your passport in with them. They kept my passport. I had no identification of any kind. They kept all of my money, and there I was. Uh, but the, the, the violation of bail was the biggest kicker because it said if you are found to be in violation of any of these conditions, you will be given life in prison without a trial. Then that makes the whole thing really scary. Because they, there's a group of people who are in charge of the country that's already arrested me, sent me to prison, and are holding me against my will without having broken a law, without doing anything wrong, just because I'm a Christian. Uh, the whole thing, and there's lots of pieces to the story, but all the way through it, there's always that thing. And, and even when the, the, our State Department did not get involved to help me until the fourth month. I had to prove myself innocent through the first three months with the original charges. And then they began working on charges and held me anyhow. They didn't release me. And then the State Department got involved. State Department told me this, Peter, and this was pretty interesting. Uh, on day eight, I've been out of prison for two days. A guy shows up from the consulate and he said, just wanted to let you know face to face. We have an agreement with India. We do not help Americans arrested in India period. We will not aid. We will not assist. We will not answer your phone. We're not going to help you do anything, and we cannot get be in contact with you till this is over. You have to prove on your own expense, your own everything, your freedom, or you go to prison. At that, The first case was for three years. The second one was for seven years in prison in India, and that's exactly what they did. Absolutely nothing for the first three months. That's a very interesting response from the from the U.S. State Department, especially in light of the kind of relationship that U.S. and India have, which is one that's in the public eye viewed as very close, a near partnership alliance, and that you're just kind of left hung out to dry uh, all on your own. I imagine, um, especially with those kinds of conditions of basically uh, virtual house arrest, and the threat hanging over over you that if you break any of those uh, bail conditions that you might face life imprisonment uh, within a foreign country like India, that that must have been extremely frustrating. Um, and, and in addition to that, my understanding is that um, over the months in which you were going through this, that there was a constant uh, change up, shift up in, in court dates, uh, I think maybe potentially even in charges that they were attempting to, to file against you that it may not have always been the the, the same thing. Is, is, is that true? It is true. The first three months I was uh, being tried or going through a, a process called come show me, which is the Indian judicial thing, uh, to explain why I had that amount of money and why I was going to spend it on Christians as a foreigner. I didn't, that was the thing. At the end of the three months, none of those things were illegal. And so they had to say, all right, we're sorry. 
So then they started the second round. The first round had a three-year prison term. The second one had a seven-year prison term where they were they never filed charges against me. It was like a grand jury hearing every Wednesday until COVID started. Uh, I spent my last six weeks in India under the total shot, shutdown of COVID in the world. The whole world was shut down. Uh, I was in the same bed in the same room for six weeks and never went out the door because the police told me, don't come out this door. <laughs> you, you stay there and somebody will, and they did. The people that were taking care of me brought me food in the morning, food in the evening, and I stayed in my spot for six weeks. But they they had it broke down in, in such a chaotic way, but it was, I guess it's normal bureaucracy really for India. For us, it shorts you out, but you know, I have to go to court on Wednesday and I go to court to check in, I'm here to uh, maybe get some movement. And, and after the, on the second litigation, the Supreme Court Justice uh, Abhijit Bhattacharya uh, from began flying and helping me and State Department was involved in getting him to, to do what he was doing. I had to pay it all. But uh, they they were always in chaos. You could go to court, no, court's closed. They don't tell me court's closed. They just let me do the three rickshaws across Sillagree, show up at court and try to figure it out. The, the prosecuting attorney, for the customs department that was the prosecutor against me the entire time would only come to court on Wednesday and he had to come every Wednesday I did he was at court every day but he only came to court if I paid him $50 US if I didn't give him $50 US when I would be stuck in the cage in the courtroom with the judge and they'd call my name he just wasn't there so it cost me $50 a week for seven or six months or so just to get the prosecutor to come to court to try to send me away for seven years. So detained for these many months with constantly shifting uh, uh, a, a suggestion of charges, but as, as you said, you were never even actually charged. And then you even have to pay out of your own pocket in order to get the prosecutor to show up and, and attempt yeah. to prosecute you so that you can kind of get some progress in this case. Um, I'm interested, uh, Pastor, in uh, a few more questions about what it was like for you personally. Uh, for instance, you know, if you have to go to court, I think you said every Wednesday, um, then uh, you must have had a lot of downtime on your hands. Um, and I don't know what kind of facilities you had access to, if, if, if you even had a laptop or Internet access or that kind of thing. Um, but uh, you said at, at one point uh, during this one six-week period, you had people bringing you food. Um, um, but in general, um, throughout uh, your multi-month uh, um, 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 detention, um, what was your daily routine like? And, and also, what what did you have access to? And, and um, did you have any kind of a con of contact, direct or or otherwise, with your family back home? My. Uh... First off, my friends from Nepal were there at the airport to pick me up when I didn't, when I got arrested. Uh, one of five gentlemen was a constant roommate for the entire seven and a half months. Uh, before I ever got out of jail, they had already made a promise to my wife, he'll never be left alone, we'll always be there. And they were always there. Now, they would go to court with me, but if they spoke up in court, they were quickly shut down and reminded they were foreigners also. Even though they looked the same and spoke the same, they were never allowed to be involved. 
Uh, but my daily routine, I had good internet, uh, as good as there is in India, where it works most of the time. If the power was on, it worked good, uh, which wasn't always on. But every morning, uh, for me, 12 hours change time difference between me and my family. So most mornings uh, for my wife, uh, which was my evening, uh, we would call and I would listen to her cry for about an hour. What am I going to do? What's going to happen? Where is it going on? Uh, I use the sentence all the time. You can't stop living because I'm gone. And later we wrote a book and the name of the book is you can't stop living because I'm gone because I said that so much. I have, but, I have a copy of it right here. Yeah. Well, thank you. And uh, that that's where that sentence came from is from my conversation with my wife. But I generally talked to her. Uh, she was working. She worked hospital. And so I would get to spend about an hour with her every morning and every night, even though we were 12 hours apart in time. And if the Internet was working, we got to, you know, use FaceTime and was able to see each other uh, and talk to each other from the time I got out of prison till the time I got home. I became a master barbecue watching a, a, a YouTube show called uh, Meat Church. Because I had a lot of time. All day, every day, I laid in the same bed for seven and a half months uh, with somewhat good uh, Wi-Fi signal. So I became a master barbecuer watching Meat Church and other barbecue shows. And I watched a whole lot of gardening shows. And uh, uh, Hollis and Nancy's Homestead filled a lot of my day up. I read, uh, I read 32 books that I'd always meant to read. I got to spend more time praying than I ever imagined I would get to. Um, I read a lot of Bible, hoping that God was going to bail me out and get me out because I kept reminding him, God, the only reason I'm in trouble is you. You asked me to come. I'm here for you. I've only represented you. It's the only thing I do. I've never tried to do anything personally in India or Nepal, just God's stuff that God asked me to do. And, uh, a lot of soul searching, a lot, you know, and then a few people were brave enough to call me. Uh, most people here, and I say that it's not that they didn't care. It's just, what do you say? You know, he's, he's arrested. He's in trouble. He's got to be in pain. And are, are you still, are you still detained? Are you still not allowed to go out of your house? Are you, are you still uh, isolated in this, in this small little, little, uh, little hovel? Oh, yeah, at a certain point, it, it, I imagine it gets a little tiresome. Yeah. And it's hard for them. It's, you know, it, so that didn't happen. But now in India, uh, and I only knew a few people in uh, Siligari, where I was being held at, I didn't know anybody. I had no connections of any kind to any church, to any group ever, because I would always just fly into there and then go up into the Himalayas and do the things that I did. Uh, but hundreds, hundreds of pastors uh, Christian people would come by probably almost every day, sometimes twice a day. Somebody would show up and say, hey, Pastor, we heard about you being here, and, and we thank you for doing what you're doing, and we just wanted to pray with you. And some of them would bring food, and, you know, so there was there was a lot of really significant uh, connections with people. Uh, I made personal friends with a lot of people that I'm still friends with. Some of them I communicate with every two or three days, every week. And it, the, the, the funny thing is, Abhijit Bhattacharya, who was my lawyer that really did the most work in country for me, 
when he found out how that uh, India was taking advantage of their own constitution and law, and he heard about it, he called me and he said, Pastor, I don't know you. I'm never going to like you. I don't want to like you. I'm never going to be your friend. And I certainly am not a Christian. But if you'll let me, and he used quite a bit of profanity with that, uh, I'll defend you and get you free because they're violating every law in India they can to do what they're doing to you. Uh, and he and I still email every week. It's been four years now. I guess we made friends after all. That's perhaps one of the best kinds of unexpected friendships is the one that starts out with, I never want to be your friend. And then you end up as, as such yeah. anyways. Well, well, one of my, one of my last questions about your experience is I remember uh, hearing this from you. It was the first time I'd heard it from you when you spoke at this Indian Christian, Indian American Christian conference um, last month. And you made mention of uh, an experience that you had at some point, uh, don't remember exactly when during your detention. And you talked about how a gentleman uh, that you uh, believed uh, was from uh, the RSS and or the BJP um, had shown up uh, to uh, confront you and uh, said some not so nice things to you. Can you Tell me a little bit about that experience. Um, how, how did you know where this where this guy was from? At what point did this happen uh, during your detention? What did he say to you? I, it was um, timing wise. It's about the third, uh, probably February, right before President Trump comes to India. Um, I am I'm a Rotarian, and Rotary International was trying to help get me home from early on. Uh, the district governor and the, one of the local presidents of the of the Rotary Club in Siligar came to see me, and he was a lawyer, he was a tax attorney, and became very helpful, became very good friends, and they worked really hard into talking to the judges and trying to get the whole thing to go away. They were unsuccessful. When the Rotary Club president was getting ready to change to the new president, the previous president, which was a very nice, helpful man, Hindu guy, uh, brought this other guy to meet me. And so I was hoping that here's another opportunity. Here's a way, it, you know, and my, I've got a bunch of phones, uh, pictures on my phone of these kids, you know, uh, 20, 30, 40, 50 kids with uniforms on and we're putting them in school. And it was a joint project between ACF and Rotary International. So I thought he'd be impressed with that. I thought it'd make him happy. I thought he would, but it, it had just the opposite effect. He became very angry very agitated. And he said, we're going to send you to prison for seven years. And he said, I hope you die while you're in prison because we're sick of you Westerners, Christians coming in here and lying to our poor people and to our poor children. He said, none of us care about poor children. The best thing that could happen to poor children is that they would all die tonight so they could reincarnate to a better caste. And he said, what, you're going to see this. We're putting you in prison for seven years. And before you get out of prison, India will become a Hindu-only nation. He said, what India needs to be successful in an economic standpoint and a world leader is we need the death of 330 million people. Now, that number didn't mean anything at the moment, but later it did. But he, he said, we need the death of 330 million people in India. 
He said, here's what you're going to see. India is going to become a Hindu-only nation. Every person in India will convert to Hinduism, They will, or they will leave the country, or we will eliminate them. What I would later find out is that the total population of Muslims and Indians in India is 330 million people. He believed, and he told me that he was a member of the BJP and part of the ruling government and part of that in Siliguri. Uh, he said, he said we're, we're going to eliminate everybody that's not Hindu because this will be a Hindu nation only before you get out of prison. Well, certainly being for myself quite familiar with the the aspects, the facets of the Hindu nationalist ideology, um, that's something I've I've been aware of that, that type of mentality. But uh, that is the most shockingly overt, blatant, uh, open um, confession of that coming from the lips of of somebody that adheres to that ideology that I've uh, I've ever heard of. That's that's uh, amazing and uh, very disturbing. Now, one, 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 let me know. add one part to that. Uh, this gentleman was a very successful Brahmin caste businessman. He was not a rebel rouser. He wasn't somebody that got stirred up. He wasn't part of some offshoot group. He was a leading influential businessman in Siliguri, India. He wasn't uneducated or, or somebody, yeah, somebody, highly, somebody highly like educated, very sophisticated, uh, wealthy, prominent man in the community. And I, I live in a little small community here. Uh, Shelbyville, the city I live in, has about 25,000 people. Uh, Silbury, where I was arrested at, is the same size as the town I live in. The difference is, is we have 25,000 and they have a little over 2 million. Well, that's uh, quite a difference in terms of uh, people packed into a particular area of uh, geographic area. And, you know, on the education point, I, I think that that's something that really a lot of people need to remember. I was just uh, in a conversation that kind of took this direction uh, yesterday where somebody was suggesting that the solution uh, to stopping um, what's happening in India as far as the, the, the rise of this kind of uh, poisonous, uh, hateful ideology um, is uh, probably going to be bound up in, in increased education. And yet, um, as I mentioned at the time, um, most of the people that I've encountered both in America and, and in India who are some of the biggest, um, most influential supporters of this ideology and the movement uh, that it's that is uh, driving are actually extremely educated people, engineers, doctors, etc. And that right. education certainly is uh, um, in terms of when we look at historical examples of other extreme authoritarian uh, genocidal um, movements that have uh, risen and thank God fallen, um, that they rose oftentimes uh, through the efforts um, and, 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 and being driven by people of, of extremely high education. So, that is right. So, Pastor, I wanted to ask you then, uh, coming to a conclusion about your experience there, as we um, begin to wrap up and talk about what you've been doing since you got back to the U.S., wanted to ask you um, what happened because the State Department, uh, as you talked about a little bit, they dragged their feet for a long time. You know, eight days in, I think you said something like that. 
uh, representative from the State Department came and basically said, we're not going to do anything for you. Uh, you're on your own. Um, I, I think I recall you saying something about four or five months in, the State Department actually began taking some interest. But eventually, um, my understanding is that uh, then uh, uh, President Trump uh, intervened directly and and did uh, took some kind of an action to secure your, your release. And so how did you actually end up getting out of all of this and, and coming home? Uh, after the first three months where I adjudicated myself and was found innocent and they refused to let me go the state department got involved the ambassador got involved and uh they sent the, the chief counsel from delhi it's a two-hour flight to Siligari, where i was at he came interviewed me and we began a very dynamic great relationship of them doing what i wish they had done three months earlier uh the gentleman they put in charge was excellent he i mean he did above and beyond uh, I had visitations from people they would want me to share, uh, to encourage me, to strengthen me, to let me know, you know, what was going on. They worked uh, very closely with the American Center for Law and Justice, and that they're probably the most intricate part of the whole story of my freedom. Uh, Jay Sekulow is the president of American Center of Law and Justice. He was President Trump's uh, attorney in one of his uh, impeachment trials. And his executive uh, lawyer, by the name of Cece Howell, called me as I talked to her the night I got out of the prison. And I either talked, texted, or emailed with her every single day, seven days a week, until she was standing there when I got to the airport in Nashville. They went way beyond. I mean, every day she was talking to me and trying to keep me... Uh, I, I told her you kept me from falling off the edge a bunch of times because it, it, it's tough. It's difficult when you know you didn't do nothing wrong and there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, but they put a lot of pressure on the State Department, especially on senators and congressmen. Of course, that's what they do in D.C. as lobbyists. And they kept working and pushing. Uh, five different times there was plans put together to bring me home. One of them in the middle of all of that was when President Trump flew to India for his first state visit to India. Uh, they took me to the border. I was standing at the border next to the security, the, the customs guy holding my passport. I signed all the documents to be released into Nepal to come home. And at the last minute, the phone rang and told them to take me back, not to release me. And President Trump landed in India about 30 minutes later. So it was all highs, orchestrated government. Um, and one of the things that Abhijit Bhattacharya told me a couple of months in, he says, Pastor, he said, we're going to work to get you home. But you need to know that your first three months was about laws and not going by home in India. He said, you're a political prisoner now. This is all political. And it'll all be political from here on out. Um, President Trump had given the State Department a directive. I don't want the pastor in India when I get there because I don't want to have to have any conversations about religious freedom. He just wanted to come and do what he did. And the guy from the State Department was very honest. Uh, he called me before I met him at the airport to go to the border. He said, you need to understand that the president's coming to do a $14 billion arms deal. You're totally expendable. If you get in the way of this deal coming through, he said, he's going to let you go to prison. And once they take you to prison, you're there for seven years and we can't get you out. 
And so that was the tension and, and that was going on. Um, they took me back when we were driving back. It's about an hour back to where I was staying from the border. Uh, one of the one of the officials of India called my uh, guy from the consulate and told him. He said, "You just tell your president that we still run India and we really don't care what he thinks." And so that was that big power play. Well, after I, I came home, I got the opportunity to go to the White House. Uh, president Trump invited me and my wife for a weekend, and we went. And, 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 and when exactly did you actually get back to the U.S.? Uh, I came back on May the nineteenth. May, I'm sorry, May 17th, 2020. So I came home in the height of the COVID thing and uh, the height of an election that was going on because the election was going to be in November. And part of what I did when I was at the White House is shoot a promotional video. If you look at the National uh, Republican National Convention, I'm that first interview, primetime first night. But uh, he invited us there to the White House, and he explained it to me when we was having a conversation. He said, on April the 1st, I called Prime Minister Modi, and I told him, I'm through. It's enough. It's time to send the pastor home. You're not holding him for any real reason other than you're just holding him. And he said, if you do not release him, tomorrow I will embarrass you internationally. Uh, the next day, I got a call from the ambassador. Uh, from Delhi, he said, they've got a deal that's going to work this time. I was skeptical. I didn't believe it because I'd had so many bad deals. But in the end, I had no options. So I took the deal. And uh, it still took them six weeks from the day we made the deal until I got on the airplane back to New York. But I was supposedly free through all of that time of COVID. And it was all COVID lockdown anyhow. But President Trump personally interceded on my behalf. And that's from his own language. That's from his mouth. You know, it's not a hearsay thing. That's what he told me. And so he, he, he secured my freedom after all that time. Well, after those seven and a half months there, and especially with everything being so unpredictable, you said five times you expected to come home and you kept getting the, the rug torn out from underneath you. The, 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 the hope, I'm sure, uh, um, um, dashed to an extent. Um, once you got back, I'm sure it must have been quite an adjustment period. I mean, I imagine this is the, uh, from what you've told me of your life story, your first time uh, facing uh, incarceration and at that in a, in a foreign country, um, not even not even being charged throughout the entire experience. But once you returned home, um, you, re you reunited with your family. I'm, I'm sure it must have been a bit of an adjustment period. Um, I would love to hear a little bit about that, but I'd also, um, in addition to that, really like to hear a little bit about, because you said at the outset that you went there and you've been paying attention to the situation in general in, in Nepal, but when it came to India, uh, you were pretty much blindsided by the political situation. Well, after those seven and a half months, I imagine that must have been quite the crash course uh, in the political scenario uh, currently unfolding in that country. And so upon returning uh, here, your homecoming, um, what did that change uh, for you as far as um, now knowing quite a bit more than you knew before about the situation over there politically? What did that change for you uh, back here as far as your engagement um, with, uh, for instance, the Indian American um, community? and uh, these kinds of issues related to what's uh, going on in India? Uh, the, the homecoming was spectacular. 
we were under COVID shutdown in the Nashville International Airport, allowed a couple hundred people to show up with T-shirts on to welcome me home, uh, which everybody was amazed by. But to be able to hug my grandkids again, hug my wife and family, and to be home was overwhelming emotional. Uh, next week, we took a week off and went on vacation as a family, and we just went to the mountains and stayed in one uh, cabin together because nothing else was legally permissive because of COVID. And uh, we, we just spent time together and got reoriented and connected. Um, even now, it's been almost four years, October will be four years. My family is still waiting for me to have that weird thing happen. You know, I, I, I was supposed to go into depression or have a nervous breakdown or lash out. And so far, none of that's happened. I came back and really after that first week, kicked right back into my normal life, the way I have always lived, with the exception of what you pointed out. Um, I, I was very aware because of having good Internet. I knew everything about the Indian government there was between council and people and interviews with people and the Internet. I was very aware of the change of the government and the things that was going on. And it has become extremely progressively worse than it was four years ago. Uh, I've become a very, uh, I'm as active of an advocate for Indian Christians as I can be. I never miss a chance. Uh, I travel, uh, I've been traveling uh, to church, Indian churches, to Indian groups, places that we've met together. Uh, to do anything I can to tell my story, to bring uh, awareness to so many people, especially to the American Christian Church. But I'm not having any luck at getting into the American Christian Church. They're focused on things other than the plight of India. But I do travel to a lot of Indian Christian churches, and they are not aware of how bad it is in India, even though it's their homeland. That's where they're from. Most, most of your Indian American Christians that are in the United States um, they they love their homeland, they love their heritage, they love their family, and they hope they never have to go back to India for a single day because it's so bad, it's so difficult. And so they, they lose what's going on. They lose, you know, they fall, India falls off their radar. So I'm trying to help that and work that. Phil uh, Kona contacted me, John Provodas contacted me just in a month or two after coming back, didn't know him. Uh, asked me if I would come to a board meeting. I got uh, involved with Fiacona. Uh, I regularly travel on their behalf. Just, to speak. For, just for our listeners, Fiacona is the Federation of Indian American Christian Organizations of North America. It's the largest uh, Indian American Christian um, umbrella group uh, in, in the U.S. Right. And I, I'm very active as a spokesman, as a fundraiser in any way I can to help them lobby and do the work that has to be done in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, I've traveled to D.C. I've been to the to the, uh, Russell Building, the Hart Building, uh, the Rayburn Building, uh, and done press releases and met with senators, congressmen. As you've been doing that, um, sorry to interject, but I, I, I want to get some um, clarification on, on your perspective on that. Uh, you've been doing this work, engaging uh, in D.C. on the Hill, you just said members of, of House of Reps, members of, of the Senate. What is your impression so far of, of how they're reacting to um, this information? Um, are, are any of them interested in what's going on? Are any of them concerned about what's going on? And 
Uh, from my perspective, um, I, I think probably a shared perspective, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. Um, the U.S. government in general, and I would say this is just as much uh, the case under under Trump under as it is under Biden, just as much under Biden as it was under Trump. Um, it hasn't really shifted much with either either administration. Um, it's the the U.S. government seems to be almost completely silent uh, on on these issues, completely unwilling to speak. So, as far as your personal engagement, what's the response been, and and why do you think the U.S. government is so? Uh, quiet and reluctant to shy to talk about this. It'll be kind of a strong statement, but the the individuals that I've met, senators, congresspeople, and, and lobbyists and whoever, all have a genuine heart for the suffering of the people that are suffering in India. They generally care. But they all say exactly the same thing. We cannot afford to be the person who steps out first or speaks out first because there is so much money that this government in India is begging to give away and America needs to get as much of it as they can. And that's pretty much the history of the United States of America. We will go to bed with almost anybody if we think there's a financial gain, even though there's a loss of life. Our government has lots of fancy stories, but we were early supporters of Hitler. We created Pol Pot. We created Idi Amin. We created Manuel Noriega. How many genocidal maniacs that we helped create are out there? The we created them all. The United States government, not intentionally probably, but have created every genocidal maniac in American history because of greed and money. And it's like, we're not for it, but we're not going to speak out again. And that is the, the, the official line of, so far, everybody I've had the privilege and honor to speak to in Washington, D.C. It needs to be done. We are sorry for what's happening to the people, but I'm not the guy that's going to speak out first, or I'm not the woman that's going to speak out first. And so uh, one thing I learned about being uh, locked up for a long time in India and working with the government is the government will say the right thing in the opening sentence, but they'll never do the right thing until you completely wear them down. President Trump said, I decided, my staff told me, this is a day or two before April the 1st, he said, my staff told me, Brian, that when they came to work last Monday, there was 2,000 letters in our mailbox from people wanting you to come home. And they told me, you've got to do something because this man's support base is shutting our communication system down between phones and mail. American Center of Law and Justice had a petition that had 230,000 people sign on my behalf. Anything that happens with government, the United States government will only happen. They know, already know what to do. They know what's the right direction. There's not a knowledge problem or an education problem. It's just they have to wear them out and break them down through talk and talk and talk and negotiation. And you finally find a leverage point where they need something you've got so they give you something they've got. I think they call it diplomacy. <laughs> So moving, moving to a close, and I mean, with your engagement there with, with the uh, political system, so I suppose it comes as no shock uh, here in the U.S. 
that uh, it sounds like you're encountering a lot of uh, profit over principle to use that age old, age old cliche. And yeah. a lot of people that um, they, you know, as you said, they're, they're already in the know, they, they have the knowledge base, there's, there's not a gap there. And even on principle, um, their hearts are with the suffering, but none of them want to be the first ones to really stick their neck out and be be the ones to begin rocking the boat. But when it comes to applying pressure and uh, as a solution to getting uh, this uh, administration or any administration to take some kind of, of an action, or even just you know like one member of Congress, um, the example of the 2,000 letters, the 230,000 sig signatures on this petition, you know, that certainly uh, um, beyond uh, now that uh, this issue of your detention is is, is uh, been solved, thank God, and, and there's a broader big picture issue to deal with, to grapple with as there's escalating persecution of Christians in India. Um, in order to move the needle and get the U.S. Uh, government or even just one member of Congress willing to take some kind of an action, uh, that pressure could be applied via similar methods. And certainly here in the U.S., um, one of the best, uh, most potentially beneficial um, uh, 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 entities or institutions uh, from, from which that pressure could come would be, would be the American church, which could be applying that pressure with these kinds of letter writing campaigns or, or petitions or you know sitting down with with members of congress which many of these uh many of these clergy members for instance actually have the political pull to call up a member of congress and, and, and arrange a sit-down meeting kind of wrapping up uh ultimately with 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 this um you said that you've been engaging a lot um, with the Indian American Christian community, and you've tried to engage with, with the American Christian community, but they don't seem to be terribly interested. Why do you think that they're not interested? Um, and, and, and what do you think can be done? Obviously, um, in, in my opinion, um, the best way to go about these things is to take, obviously, start small, start somewhere. Think, uh, think global and act local, as they say. And so uh, the ultimate uh, or the initial goals are not to not to get every single church in America taking action, but even a few. And um, I can count on on, on one hand, um, you know, as somebody that has been in this field for a decade and a half um, and who, you know, well um, acquainted with the American uh, non-Indian uh, Christian community growing up in it. I can count on on one hand the number of of pastors, priests uh, that I personally know or know of, who are active and vocal on these issues. There's maybe three or four of them, and 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 that includes yourself, and that includes my own my own personal priest who's only vocal on these issues because he met me. So, what? Why do you think it is that it's so difficult uh, to get the American church? to pay some kind of an attention to these issues, especially considering how much influence they could have in, in moving the needle on, on, on uh, making an impact. Um, and, and what do you think could be done um, that might not already be being done, be being done in order to get them to uh, uh, swing into action? I don't know the answer to that one. Uh, I, I'm interested in it. Uh, last month I sent 50 copies of my book with a letter 
a short letter that said, please say something, do something today to the 50 top mega churches in America. I've gotten one thank you card from one pastor that said I'm not likely to be engaged. So I don't know the answer. I don't know the question. I do. I do. Maybe I really do know the answer. Uh, anytime you talk to a Christian, they, they lead into it, especially the pastor with the words, I'm going to pray about it. Now, I'm a pastor. In most pastors world, that's code. When a pastor tells you, I'm going to pray about it, that means you're never going to get any results from it at all. They're going to just give it to God and let go of it. Uh, but that's still the most effective, powerful answer to your question. If the American Christian church would pray about freedom in India, the way that they prayed 50 years ago for missionaries to go there and build the Christian community and win the lost. You see, the missionary, the missionary mindset of the American church today doesn't exist. The average American Christian church invests 0.02% of their annual income to missions, 0.20%, not even 1%, only a quarter of a percent of the normal church's income is spent on helping those that have less. I guess the church has turned into a business just like the United States government. It doesn't hit the bottom line. We got other things to work on. Well, the most powerful thing that one can do about it, uh, as you as you just said, is 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 to pray uh, at least. Um, and certainly, it's difficult to pray about something when when you don't even know it's happening. So uh, certainly, uh, pray, um, of course, for the church in America to be to be uh, willing uh, to take action on these issues, but also to be willing uh, and and uh, to be found available to be educated and 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 uh, grow informed about these issues because in my experience they're they're sadly very, very ignorant um, about about this. But thank God uh, there are um, a few uh, pastors, few members of the clergy, few um, few members of the laity uh, who are, uh, Passionate, whose whose hearts are are swayed that this is the right thing, that uh, the the this is God's calling, uh, God's demand demanding, God's obligation placed on us as Christians that we have to uh, pay attention to, uh, pray about, be concerned about these issues. Um, and uh, certainly, I, I admire you, uh, Pastor, for uh, going through this experience and coming back, um, and instead of uh, doing what you could be doing and just going out fishing every day or I don't know exactly what you all like doing down there in Tennessee. I know there's a lot of snake handling that uh, that happens, um, but whatever other pastime you you, you might have, uh, that's a great pleasure. To. <laughs> it's a great pleasure. You know what I, we enjoy doing? We enjoy barbecue and gardening. And I'm a master at both of them, thanks to my sabbatical in India. So <laughs> barbecuing and, and gardening, and then and then uh, taking up this cause, which uh, uh, you didn't have to take up which is now talking as much as you can about the, the persecution that's ongoing against Christians and, and other minorities and uh, in India. And so um, any final thoughts, uh, Pastor Brian? Yeah, there is. Uh, and you and I haven't talked about this, but there's probably a shared fantasy dream that you and I would both have. 
the easiest, most effective way that you or I, either one, could reach the American Christian Church in America would to be get a five-minute interview on Fox News. Fox News has more evangelical swing and power on the American Christian Church than any denomination that's Christian. Now, that's a personal thing. I think you would get excited about it, too. If I could just get five minutes to do an interview with anybody on Fox News about any of this, we could reach thousands and thousands of Christians so they'd at least know what was going on. So if anybody happens to listen to your webcast, it would give one of us a shot somehow. We can at least get the word out. That's a goal to angle for, and um, I have uh, already in my head a short little script of what I might say. I think you probably have the same. Uh, Pastor Brian Naren. 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 Just easy. Yeah, with that southern draw on there. Thank you so much uh, for your time. I look forward to meeting you again, uh, hopefully breaking bread again soon, and uh, thank you. We will. Thank you for this opportunity, Peter. Thank you for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please remember to subscribe and follow for more to come as we look forward to dialoguing once again on DOSA.